0: Hi, Mary. Quick intro from us this week, I guess. We got a great episode, haven't we, with Michael Moberson? Plenty, plenty of good stuff in that episode. So we didn't want to get too much in a listeners' way of getting to that.
1: No, absolutely. That's right, Dan. But we did want to shout out to everyone who came along to join us last week at the drinks that we hosted. You'll have remembered that we mentioned them in a few episodes. Really, really good fun. Still on a high for seeing people face to face lots of people that I was kind of reconnecting with that I've known for a very long time lots of new faces as well so really good night really good atmosphere wasn't it
0: yeah I really enjoyed it thanks everyone for coming and thanks for those people who've reached out and said it was great we we both had a really good time that's awesome and hope everyone's enjoying the summer we're probably cruising in towards the end of our series now we normally try and wrap up mid-July-ish before the summer holidays but we still got a few great episodes left to go so let's get to it shall we absolutely let's get to it
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: Hi, everyone. Today on Investment Uncut, we are talking security valuation, and I'm very delighted to say we've got a very special guest joining us this week. That is Michael Mobison, who is head of Consilient Research at CounterPoint Global, part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you.
1: So Michael, my first question is always to tell the listeners a bit more about the role, but usually I know what the words in the job title mean. This time I'm a little bit stumped, so I'd love if you could explain what the word conciliant means, as well as giving us a description of your role.
2: Yes, thank you, Mary. I'll be very quick about it, but conciliant is an old word. It's been around about 150 years, but it basically means the unification of knowledge. So the idea is that as we go out into the world, the best way to solve problems that face us, including the most challenging problems we face as a society, is to take the big ideas from various disciplines and put them together to try to solve those problems. So conciliation is the unification of knowledge. So this is really the idea is that we should not be narrow in the world of business or finance or investing, but really try to cast a wider net for ideas and to see how those ideas might inform us. With that backdrop said, My job is really sort of three different parts. One is to work with our investment team, our investors on investment process. So how can we be constantly learning as an organization? How can we do things better? How can we think about things more effectively? The second part of my job is doing research. People can subscribe to it. It's all free. It's out there. We don't publish super frequently, but we try to talk about different topics that are relevant in the world of investing and sort of at the forefront of things that might be of interest to people. And then the third thing I do is I would just call it external, so that might be speaking with clients or conferences or doing podcasts, for instance. Those three sets of responsibilities are sort of what I do all day.
0: I love the idea, the idea of the concept of consilience. I've heard you explain that a few times on podcasts, and it kind of strikes me that we need more heads of consilient research around, I suppose. The world might be a better place if more people knew what that means. I think
2: there are pros and cons. I would refer there's a, I just thought a wonderful book by David Epstein called Range where he talks about basically generalist versus specialist. In the investment world we talk and debate a lot about this general versus specialist. There's a similar type of thing. So the downside of this consilience or this thing is you have to read a lot of stuff and pay attention to a lot of different areas and you tend to not be a master of any of them. And then the second thing is you have to be Reasonably effective at making connections that are reasonable. So, analogies or metaphors that are actually robust enough to help guide your decision making. There are pros and cons. So, I think that I broadly come down, not surprisingly, that the world of generalists tend to do best over the long haul, but there clearly are roles for specialists. And this type of thinking or approach may not be as effective for some domains
0: or some tasks. Cool. Well, Michael, before we get into the meat of our conversation, why don't you tell us one thing we ought to know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV?
2: I think that the one that comes to mind is how important my own family is. You know, I've been married to my wonderful and beautiful wife for almost 32 years now, and we have five kids, four of which are out of college, so they're a little bit older. One is still in university, but that's a big part of my life. And as anybody knows who's been around a large family, you grow up in a sort of a chaotic environment. So that's always been a reasonably important part of my career development. And now it's just lovely. So they're all young people, and young men and women, and it's fabulous. So that's one aspect I think is not widely known probably and very important to me.
1: Fantastic. It is funny, isn't it? The difference between, I don't know what size family you grew up in yourself, Michael, but so I have one brother, but really good family friends of us. They had four. They're all now of the age of having kids and all of them are saying, well, I want a big family too, because that's what I knew growing up and that hecticness and the fact that the kids can overpower the parents in many respects, given how many there are of them. I think they are yearning for having that for themselves. So yeah, fantastic.
2: Exactly. Well, I definitely know that sensation of being overwhelmed by the children. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent. Let's get into our conversation on valuation then. I was sort of wondering where was the best sort of jumping off point for the whole conversation. But you wrote or co wrote, I think, a classic book, Expectations Investing, I think about 20 years ago now, or was it even longer than that, maybe? But perhaps you could just try and give listeners a quick run through of the core thrust of some of the ideas of that book to get us going. Thanks, Dan. I mean, the backdrop is that I came onto Wall
2: Street in mid-1980s without any sort of background in finance or business. And so I was a liberal arts major, so I didn't really know what was going on. And I found it all quite confusing, the terminology and so forth. And then in my training program, actually, someone gave me a copy of Al Rappaport's book called Creating Shoulder Value. And that was the first book for me that consolidated a lot of these ideas in a way and, and really has become the bedrock. And of course, Al Rappaport was a co-author with me with, on Expectations Investing. There were sort of three things that were important in that book. One is about the importance of cash flows. Second was about strategy and valuation. We could talk more about that in a moment. And then the third thing was about expectations of the stock prices reflect expectations about financial performance the target audience for that chapter were corporate executives to help them make better capital allocation decisions to understand their stock. But of course, the opposite side of that same coin was completely relevant for investors. So we took that as a point of departure to expand on this theme for investors specifically. So the idea of expectations investing, I don't want to discourage anybody from buying the book, but it's actually a very simple idea, which is there are three steps. One is to say, given today's prevailing stock price, What are the expectations in terms of important value drivers that solve for today's price? So in a sense, you're trying to read the mind of the market to understand what it believes is going to happen to solve for today's price. So notice I've not imposed my view. I've not done any at this point, any deep analysis. I'm simply saying, what do I have to believe? And by the way, if you want an analogy, it would be something like, if it's a high jumper, for instance, the question would be, how high is the bar set? You have no idea how high the jumper can jump, but you know that the bar is set at two feet or seven feet or whatever it is. Step two then is where the work happens, and that's where we introduce strategic and financial analysis to assess whether that company is likely to meet, exceed, or fall short of that set of expectations. Through a combination of financial and strategic analysis, hopefully you develop a view, and this is all probabilistic, but you develop a view that allows you to discern that difference. And then step three, as a consequence of one and two, is buy, sell, or hold. So basically, what is the reasonable conclusion as a consequence? Now the book's got a lot of other stuff. The beginning of it, we call it assembling the tools. So we talk a lot about cash flow models and strategies. So we're giving people some foundation there. The middle of the book is the heart of the three steps I just described. And then the last section, we have some deeper dives into things like real options and mergers and acquisitions and share buybacks and actually signals to help people understand when they should revisit expectations. So that's the complete package. The last thing I'll say, especially for listeners who are keen on this, but a little bit, Worried about getting into all the numbers and so forth is we have a website for the book called expectationsinvesting.com that includes tutorials, online tutorials, each of which, or most of which at least, have downloadable Excel spreadsheets. So if there's a numerical example in the book about some cash flow model, for instance, and you'd like to know how those numbers are calculated, you can go to the website, you can download the Excel spreadsheet, and you can actually see the numbers and see them, you can recreate them for yourself. We're trying to make this idea very accessible. I think it's very robust. And just a quick comment is that for some reason, we just seem like we want to value things. Maybe this sense of volition, like I'm in control, rather than saying there's only one thing we know for sure in this whole equation, and that's the current stock price. And let's go backward from that and try to understand what's going on. So going back to our high jumper, just to clean this up, the high jumper metaphor, step one is how high the bar is set. Step two is our analysis tells us how high the jumper can jump. And then step three says, will this be successful or unsuccessful as a try? And that's basically the set of
1: ideas in a nutshell. I really like, I suppose you've turned the way many people think on its head effectively in the kind of, as you just said, what do we know at the moment? We know the stock price. And I suppose the method that you just described helps you to hone in on what you actually need to assess. Because I suppose if you're looking at a stock and saying, am I willing to buy this for the price it's currently priced at? That's a huge question. And there will be very few people in the world that are well enough experience to know for that particular company exactly what the equation is. Whereas I suppose you turn it around, you solve for what you need to believe. Suddenly you've got something that says a very specific question. I need to believe that these cash flows will come from this area and that's much easier to assess. Is that a fair representation?
2: It's not only a fair assessment. I think that you've articulated it very well. It Doesn't it feel like a more accessible task to do it that way than to go the other way around? And As it turns out, not surprisingly for most businesses, there are just a handful of things that really matter. What you find, by the way, just mathematically, if you play around with this is usually sales growth is really a big driver of all this stuff. So once you understand sales and margins, and then you do have to roll up your sleeves a bit to understand the magnitude of capital investment, so how much you're investing in the business and have some sense of return on investment. And the other thing is there are backdrops, there are things we can tap into in the decision-making literature to help guide some of our thought processes here. But you're exactly right. I think you articulated it really well that by turning this task around, hopefully it makes it more, I think, more accessible and rules out a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense and allows you to focus in on what we hope is the crux of the issue.
0: As you said, you wrote the first version of that book some while ago, presumably because you felt that people were jumping too much to that second step, missing out the first one. The book has obviously stood the test of time, still very popular. You think there's still a tendency, despite the book having been there for so long, that people, for some reason, naturally gravitate to the second step of putting the value on something and are still missing out the expectation step. So it kind of still needs saying, even after all these years. Dan, when I read Creating Shareholder Value in the
2: 1980s, I was persuaded that the ideas there would be what everybody would be doing within a few years because it seemed like it was so sensible to me. And here we are 30 plus years later, and that's still not the case. The first thing I'll just say, the first edition of Expectations Investing, just to place it very concretely, came out on September 10th, 2001. So in the United States, at least, the day before a national tragedy in the midst of a three-year bear market. So when we signed the contract to write the book, Things were looking pretty rosy and markets were soaring and so forth. And when it actually came out it plunked during the middle of a bear market. And then the question is why redo it? We redid it almost exactly 20 years later. And there were a couple of things. One is to brush off some of the ideas. We've learned a lot of things in terms of how to teach and communicate the concepts. And then there's also some things just intellectually that have been new. For example, the huge shift from active management to indexing, the rise of intangibles, some of the accounting issues. So, those are all things that I think put together warranted taking a fresh look at the concepts. But interestingly, I don't know if it's good or bad, but as we went through the chapters and went through the concepts, I would just say the vast majority completely stood the test of time because they're based on bedrock principles that I think if we met 50 years from now, they would still be true. The value of financial assets, the present value of the cash flows, I mean, how much you can wiggle around with that one, like that would be true as well. So, it's a good observation.
1: Should we move on to valuation because you just referred to cash flows and discounting cash flows. And of course, the discounting cash flow model, many listeners will be familiar with in terms of setting a value for a stock. But we've also got quite commonly used in the market valuation multiples. How do you view those two sort of against each other?
2: So I've often said that valuation multiples are not valuation. They're shorthands for the valuation process. And those two things should never be confused. What's good about shorthands, of course, in life, and we all use them, and we all should use them, is they save us a lot of time. So you have these heuristics that allow you to move around and make decisions quickly. What's bad about shorthands is they can come embedded with some biases or blind spots that you're simply not aware of. So if you're using the proxy without understanding the foundations, you can start to go off and do things that don't make a lot of sense. So let's break it down into first principles. And I hope everybody would agree with this. The value of financial assets, the present value of cash flows which means if I'm going to value an asset, I need to answer three simple questions. Number one is what are the cash flows going to be? Number two, when am I getting my money? Am I getting my money next week or in 20 years? And third is how risky is it? And we don't have to get into details of defining risk, but we all have a sense of what that means. This seems like an endeavor that's pretty sure. This seems like an endeavor that's unsure. So if you accept that those are sort of the core things, and that's whether you're valuing real estate or bonds or equities, it doesn't make any difference. Those core ideas are going to across all those different areas, then you start to realize, gee, if it's cash flows, timing, and some sort of risk measure, you're going to start to say, well, there are drivers of value for equities, for instance, and it's going to be growth, it's going to be investment needs and opportunities, so both. It's going to be some sort of return on investment. And obviously, we have a threshold. We want to earn above our opportunity cost of capital on our investments, which is good. And if we invest below, that tends to be bad. And there's going to be some sort of a discount rate, which is an opportunity cost, which is often imposed by the market. And by the way, even in 2022, we've seen quite a, obviously, substantial change in that underlying discount rate as interest rates have changed and credit spreads have changed and so on and so forth. So, The key, I think, and I say to my students, you have to earn the right to use a multiple. What do I mean by that? It means that when you say this is worth 15 times earnings or 27 times, whatever it is, there are underlying assumptions that would substantiate that multiple that you need to understand and of course, make sure that what you're saying is consistent with what you believe about the operations of the business. And that's where the problems can arise, So, people start to just throw multiples around really without understanding what underlies them. So, just to summarize that, Mary, I was an analyst myself. I use multiples. I try to be thoughtful about it. But by the same token, you need to go back to first principles. So, we've written two pieces. One was called What Does a Price Earnings Ratio Mean? And another was What Does an Enterprise Value to EBITDA multiple Mean? And we really try to Ground these concepts in the cash flow models so that people then can go out and use the multiples in an intelligent and thoughtful fashion rather than just saying, that's what I saw before, or that's where it used to be, or that's what the comp table tells me, or whatever it is. So that's the basic, I think, the tension, the pros, the goods, the puts and takes about using multiples versus going back to the core model.
0: It's a really important point, isn't it? I see people make those sorts of statements all the time. People say something like, oh, that stock has a really high valuation. They say Amazon or something. Amazon, oh, it has a ridiculously high valuation. It's overvalued. It's got a 40 price earnings, 50 price earnings, whatever it is. That stock is better value. It's 15. You even hear people talking about that, about the whole market as well. And I think we're all guilty of that a little bit. I probably fall into that trap as well. But I think one thing I think you say in that piece about price earnings, there's a really interesting chart that shows the relationship between sales growth and price earnings multiple. And you kind of show how at higher levels of sales growth, you would naturally expect the price earnings multiple just to be way higher. But people are often anchored to kind of lowish price earnings multiples because that's where the market's been or whatever.
2: Well, the thing is that growth is not inherently good or bad. Growth has to be qualified. And that is qualified by whether the return on investment is high, low, or okay. So that's the best way to think about it is if you put a dollar into a business and it earns above a dollar, then growth is great. And the faster you grow, the more wealth you'll create and the higher the multiple you will deserve. By contrast, if you're earning your cost of capital, and so every dollar goes into the business worth a dollar, you can grow as fast as you want, but you're effectively on an economic treadmill. You can turn the speed up or down, but you don't move anywhere. And then third, and most importantly, of course, if you're earning below your cost of capital on investments, every dollar you invest will destroy value. And so growth actually will be deleterious to the value of the business. And you probably say, like, well, gee, where does that ever happen in real life? And one of the areas where it does happen quite commonly is mergers and acquisitions. I mean, how many times have you seen a deal announced that is proclaimed to be accretive to earnings or cash flow or some sort of metric like that. But actually the stock price goes down. What the market is saying is that's a net present value negative investment. This money being spent is going to earn present value cash flows less than what you're spending. And as a consequence, is actually destroyed value. Doesn't matter what the accounting earnings are. So sales growth would be bigger. So that's a higher growth rate. Earnings might be higher and that's a faster growth rate, but of course you're destroying value. So just taking the next step to understand beyond the superficial, to really understand what's driving the the ultimate value.
1: I wondered if we could link a couple of things that you've said, Michael. So we talked obviously about valuation and methods to understand of valuation. You also just earlier mentioned intangibles, and that was one of the reasons that you'd updated your book. I wondered if you could describe how you think about allowing for intangibles when you're thinking about valuation.
2: Yeah, thank you, Mary. It's a really important issue. And I think that every investor should come up to speed on this because it's quite vital to understanding what's going on. So let's just take a step back and say, how do companies create value, generally speaking? They invest money, then that money generates a return. And if that return is above the investment level, that's good. And you do more of it, that's going to be good. So that's the basic formula. So the question is, when we say we invest, what do we mean by that? And there are two sort of broad categories. One would be tangible investments. And these are all the things we can relate to. We buy a machine, we build a factory, we acquire inventory. These are all things that are very, and so by definition, physical and tangible. The second kind is intangible. So these are by definition, non-physical. So this might be how I train my employees, how I build my brand. This might be research and development to find the next new blockbuster drug, what have you. And the important sub-story here is that intangibles, say two generations ago, so it's called the 1970s. I mean, tangibles were roughly double those of intangibles in terms of investment. So tangibles dominated, always intangibles have been around. Now that relationship is basically flipped. So intangibles are bigger than tangibles. So that means that's really important to understand. There are two aspects that investors should really focus on. The first is that the accounting is very different. Dan mentioned a moment ago, like multiples appearing to be quite high. Well, here's the key. Intangible investments are expensed on the income statement and they don't show up at all on the balance sheet if this is done organically. So as a consequence, you can be investing very high returns, but it actually makes it look like you're losing money because where you're reflecting that investment on your financial statements. By contrast with a tangible investment. That shows up on the balance sheet. It is depreciated over time, but it's very different. So, two companies with identical economics, but one investing in tangible and one investing in tangibles, will have very different financial statements. And again, if you just are putting things into the world of that's profitable, that's unprofitable, you're missing the boat in a big way. So, that's the first thing, just the accounting issues. And we've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years writing about how to reverse those processes. It doesn't affect cash flow, just to be crystal clear. It doesn't affect cash flow at the end of the day, but it gives you better insight into the magnitude of investment and the return on investment, which I think is vital to understanding a business. The second thing I'll say, Mary, that I think is very important is the characteristics of intangible assets tend to be somewhat different than the characteristics of tangible assets. I don't want to come across as some sort of hand-waving lunatic saying like, this is all new. Most of the ideas here have been well understood by economists for a very long time. It's just the spotlight has shifted from the tangible to the intangible. Westlake and Haskell wrote a really nice book, and it's called Capitalism Without Capital. They have a nice little way to summarize this. They call it the four S's. And these are the characteristics. One is scalability, which basically says that intangible assets can scale much faster than tangible assets. It makes sense. Walmart builds new stores. They have to go out and find real estate and build a store and so on and so forth. You write software code that's popular. It's easy to disseminate. It might be costly to create, but very cheap to disseminate. Number two is sunkenness. Sunkenness is the idea that if something is obsolete, it's worth basically zero. That's not true for physical assets. The third is this idea of spillovers, which is it's very difficult to protect intellectual property or these intangible assets so people can basically mimic what you're doing quite easily. This is a whole other area of how to think about this topic in terms of a growth theory. And then the last one is synergies. And synergies just says that innovation is typically recombining existing building blocks in new ways to solve problems. And to the degree to which these building blocks are intellectual capital and we have digital means to reorganize them, that would be very optimistic about concepts like being able to pursue growth. And so just to summarize all that is this is a fundamental shift in how companies are investing. Our accounting really hasn't kept up and there are different strategic implications. And all that together is just a really important thing for investors to understand. Now, the last thing I'll just say about this is this idea of capitalizing intangibles, which is one of the ways to make everything on a comparable basis, apples to apples. It's a little bit of the Wild West. We don't really know how to do this. I mean, the broad ideas are straightforward, but there's a lot of devil in the details in terms of how to do this. And so I think it's a wide open area of research. I think that investors who are paying attention to this may be able to glean some insights as to just by following the academic literature, to see how to do this in the most effective fashion. So I think it's a very exciting area. It's obviously very important and probably doesn't get the kind of attention it deserves given its significance in recent decades.
0: It's a really good point, isn't it? Because you do hear people say things, people make sweeping statements like, oh, look, all these tech firms, they're profitless tech, they're not making any money, they haven't got any earnings sort of thing. I always sort of bristle a little bit when people say that because of people often don't explain how sort of subjective sometimes the accounting can be or how skewed it can be for these certain things. Because people said the same things about Amazon, of course, sort of five years ago. I guess maybe that's one of the classic examples where five, six years ago people were saying, Oh, how is Amazon worth so much? It doesn't make any money which of course if you looked at it in more detail it was a silly statement it had very low earnings compared to its value but that's because of the way those earnings were calculated which a lot of people aren't digging into they're just taking that at sort of face value
2: absolutely and dan you're making a point that i'll just repeat back, which is there are good losses and there are bad losses. And one of the keys to investors is separating those two bins from one another. And the other thing that I've trotted this out many times, but if you look at the first 15 years that Walmart was public, I think it was something that was very similar for Home Depot. So these large retailers, these are two businesses that had negative free cash flow. In other words, they invested more than they earned. Had those investments been on the income statement, they would have looked like money losers as well. But of course, the underlying store economics were very attractive. And as a consequence, you want negative free cash flow. You want them to invest as much as they possibly can at those high returns. So again, it's just going beyond the superficial to grasp the business a little bit better, to really have an opinion about the underlying economics. One example today I think is very prominent is these businesses where you value it through customer lifetime value. So there's a customer acquisition cost and then there's a stream of cash flows. And of course, you just do the math. Customer acquisition cost is all upfront by definition. And then the stream of cash flows that the customer will generate is over time. And so again, that would have been like a machine. We would have capitalized that and depreciated it over time, but now we're expensing the full cost of acquisition. And so again, the proposition may look fabulous, the accounting looks horrendous. And that's the look through that we want to get.
0: It almost feels like 10 years ago people sort of laughed at the lights of Facebook when they were talking about monthly average users as like a key metric. And now of course that's like I think most people consider that to be a vital financial measure for a lot of these companies because it's sort of completely reoriented the way people need to look at companies and there's now more of a sense of it. My question was more it feels like some investors have had a big blind spot for this, I think, because people are very anchored to the tangible way of looking at the world. And so of Yeah, I've got a big blind spot about how to look at intangibles. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's still the case, or do you think people have taken it on board?
2: Well, I think it's a mix, but there's an interesting, fairly recent academic paper, and these professors did this and essentially broke down this good losses, bad losses. And, well, they ended up having three categories. One was the good losses, the other was profitable companies, and the other was the bad losses. And then they match the companies, they match them for their size and their industry and their valuation and so forth. And what they found was over the last 15 or 20 years, it has been the good losers that have delivered the highest total shareholder returns, followed by the profitable companies, followed in turn by poor returns for the money losers. So the idea here would be that the market may be wisening up to this, but perhaps those excess returns would be an indication that maybe we've gone through the wisening up process, but the market at least didn't fully appreciate some of the prospects. So I don't want to, again, come across as saying losing money is good. That's clearly not the message. The message is to focus on the basic unit of analysis to understand if the economic proposition is an attractive one. And if so, that gives you a very different set of insights and way to assess the business versus the old fashioned way of losing money, which is basically your costs and expenses exceed your revenues. And it's just not good.
1: As you were talking there, and I think you did touch on it almost explicitly then, but I couldn't help but think about sort of discussions around market efficiency. And I think your comments just then about the study and the market potentially wisening up to some of this, I guess, starts to answer that question, but really keen to hear your thoughts on market efficiency at a general level, but also perhaps how you've seen that change over time from your perspective and where we might go next.
2: It's a really important concept and set of ideas. And We don't talk about it enough. So we wrote a piece where we spent a lot of time on this, and we called it, Who's on the other side? (laughs) And the basic idea is, if I'm making an investment, I'm buying something or selling something, the fundamental question I want to ask is, who's on the other side of this thing? What do they know that I don't know? Or why are they acting in a way? Now, the first thing to say is, I always like to harken back to a very famous paper from 1980 by Grossman and Stiglitz called, On the Impossibility of Informationally Efficient Markets. At the time, in the 1960s and 70s, there was almost this celebration of market efficiency that basically suggested that all information was reflected in prices and basically trying to outperform the market was futile. And Grossman-Sticklitz came along and said, you know, that really can't be true because there is a cost to gathering information and reflecting in prices. And if there's a cost, there should be a requisite benefit, and that benefit is some form of excess returns. So there may not be a lot of them. They may be difficult to acquire. But in other words, it is the chase of those excess returns that keep people trying. So Lasse Pedersen, a wonderful finance professor, wrote a book about this, but he's got this lovely title where he says, markets are efficiently inefficient. There's enough inefficiency to keep people trying, but not so much that there's a ton of money laying around. In this report, what we ended up doing is saying, can we talk about and be systematic about the sources of inefficiency? And we use it, we called it the bait model just to try to be clever. But bait means there are the four areas. One is behavioral. And we could come back to behavioral. And basically all these other things could be considered to be behavioral at some level. But behavioral basically says, for reasons that we understand in studies of sociology and social psychology, do people collectively make mistakes about assessing things that could be beneficial for people on the other side? And this is obviously sort of booms and crashes would be sort of the, the extremes of that idea. The second is analytical. So Dan, Mary, we all have the same information, but based on that information, we come to different conclusions. And for example, Mary, your conclusion is better than my conclusion. And as a consequence, you have some insight. And that can happen quite a bit. As you can imagine, Just there are some people who are just really good at doing good analysis. The third is literally information. And so do you know something that I don't know? And obviously, regulatory bodies and so forth want to make sure that information is disseminated uniformly and relatively costlessly, but of course, there's a lot of information that floats around the world. So you never want to obviously acquire information in an illegal fashion or improper fashion, but by the same token, people can do the so-called mosaic effect. They can sort of put things together in a way that gives them insight that others may not have. And then the final one, the T of bait is technical. I call it technical, but basically, are there people who are buying or selling securities for reasons that are not fundamental? are they forced? And so the classic example, that would be things like margin calls. So you put on a position, you're very bullish about it. You think it's going to go up. You do this with leverage. So you borrow money to buy more of it that you otherwise would. If the asset price goes down, your lovely banker is going to call you up and say, we need more collateral. We need more money. And if you can't pay it, they will just force you to sell a part of your stake. So you may be kicking and screaming as that asset's going out the door, but you're selling for technical reasons. Another classic one is if your insurance companies can only earn, for example, investment grade bonds, and a bond gets downgraded from investment grade to below investment grade, so they have to automatically sell it. Obviously, things going in and out of indexes. There are a lot of different little sort of fringe cases where this might be the case. So, and by the way, I actually think, if we think about the last six months of markets, there have been a lot of instances of this technical selling for people, again, doing things for non fundamental reasons. So, a bit of a long winded answer, but I think it's an incredible rich area again, who's on the other side. So when you make an investment, ask yourself, what do you believe is the source of inefficiency? Is there something weird going on here behaviorally? Am I analyzed the situation better than others around me? Do I have better information in some way? Or am I a liquidity provider for someone who's trading for technical reasons? They're forced sellers or even forced buyers, by the way, like covering shorts and so forth. Am I a liquidity provider for those people? And as a consequence, I can generate excess returns.
1: Do you think it's important to understand why that person's on the other side does that influence your view on how much you would pay for a certain if you're buying a security or is that sort of irrelevant to your very first point on this podcast around turning the equation on its head
2: i wouldn't say that it's irrelevant because you want to know the motivation but i maybe zoom up one level higher which is to say that alpha which is in financial terms is what we talk about in terms of excess returns alpha by definition pre-fees is zero because it's a y intercept of a regression analysis and by definition, a full regression of all investors in all markets is going to be a beta of one and alpha of zero. If I'm going to generate a positive return, someone has to have a negative return on the other side, in equal measure. So that sort of gets you to think about who's on the other side of this trade. Like, why do I think I'm the smart person in this trade and someone else is not as smart as I am? So I think that understanding, now that gets into almost an ecological point, which is what does the ecology of the market look like? Who else is participating in this market? and why are they participating? And again, why do I walk around and think that I'm the smartest person? Now, I will say that this has been on my mind a lot in the last 18 months. It's got a lot of relevance. So when the pandemic hit and people were sitting around, sports betting got shut down and everything, there's just a lot of people started to turn their attention to markets and start to invest in stocks or options or what have you. And these are often individuals. And there's just a very full, rich literature on institutions versus individuals and investing. And it is not a pretty picture for individuals. They tend not to be as good as institutions, obviously because they're not doing it as full-time and as seriously and often with fiduciary responsibility and so forth. And so this is an unfortunate chapter in this whole episode, which is, it's already, I think, been the case. But if it's not when this final chapter is written, there will have been a lot of individuals who have gotten hurt financially by moving into these markets. And they were the source of alpha for somebody else. So I think that Mary, the answer to your question is thinking a lot about the ecology of what's going on around you. And that might be another way to gain some insights as to whether your opportunity
0: set is as rich as you think. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting point on the institutions versus individuals. I think what you said sort of must be right, but I do sometimes push back on it a little bit just because we obviously see a lot of institutional asset managers sort of pitching to clients, justifying their process to clients. And I often feel that that can develop a bit of a blind spot because you end up investing according to a process that you can justify on paper, which isn't the same as investing necessarily the best way. So for example, an individual winding back a few years, an individual might've said, you know what? I love Facebook, I use it all the time. I think it's gonna do really well, I'm gonna buy Facebook, which was a great decision for a while, obviously it wasn't this year. Whereas an institutional manager might say, no, I have to have this rigorous process. It has to be something I can justify. I'm never gonna buy a stock that has a PE ratio of more than 35, because it just doesn't fit my process. And so that does lead to a little bit of a blind spot in that they're kind of being a bit too rigid In terms of the process. And that argument seemed to work for a while. But obviously, this year, things have really reversed. And I'm probably pushing my luck with that argument this year, especially with the Facebook example.
2: I think, Dan, there are sort of two levels of that. One is the first thing is, and you guys are much more versed in this than I am, but when you're sitting down with a manager and you're asking about their process, you want to walk away convinced that that process provides a steady and economically sound way to generate excess returns. And there are ways you can do that. You can do things like, the fundamental law of active management, information ratio equals information coefficient times the square root of breadth. Or in plain language, it says excess returns are a function of the skill times the opportunity set. And then you can break down skill into some subcomponents. And so you have a line of inquiry, I think that can be quite rich to understand whether that manager is doing something that makes economic sense when you roll it back up. And then you want to ask about their activities or how they're spending their days. And by the way, there are many different from systematic strategies that have done fine over time, Ed Thorpe or somebody like that to Warren Buffett, who's making very few, but very chunky decisions. And there's everything in between. So there's no, I'm not sure there's a right answer, but there should be an answer that is economically that holds together. But the second thing is to say on the individuals is just, that's the point is that you can always pull an anecdote or you can go back and say, oh, Peter Lynch said, if you go to the mall and you like this thing, you should buy the stock or whatever. Those are anecdotes, and those are fine, but what you want to do is step back and look at the aggregates and say, when we think about potential wealth creation and destruction, what do the aggregates tell us on average? One of the nicest papers on this is Barber and Odean, where they studied the Taiwanese market, and the Taiwanese market was a particularly interesting one because they could tag, they could figure out who was an institution and who was an individual. And then he just looked at the trading activity. And what they found was institutions generated excess returns and individuals generated negative returns. So obviously the alpha, you could see the alpha flow essentially in that data. Again, so were there individuals that did well? I'm sure. Were there institutions that did poorly? Of course. But on average, that was the basic direction of the flows was from one to the other. And I think that's roughly speaking true. So when you think about this boom of, for example, SPACs or this boom of IPOs that we saw over the last year and a half or so... Typically, those things are not good indicators of the future and the kinds of people that get excited about them, or even the meme stocks, the kinds of people that get excited about them without fundamental justification. The movies just don't tend to end well for those kinds of folks.
1: And I suppose, yeah, as an investment advisor looking for a manager for my clients to invest with, I want to know they have a robust process. I want to know they have a process. And I suppose, why do I want that? And why do I want it to be clearly articulated? Part of it is because I want them to keep a clear head when things change. And I think that's probably, from my perspective, that's one of the key differences between institutional investors and between individuals is for an institutional investor, maybe because there's more riding on it, there's more individuals under the bonnet that are impacted by the decisions, but it feels like there's a lot more emphasis on making clear-headed decisions In times of change and volatility, whereas for an individual, it could be their future success and their future finances that they've got on the line there. But there's nothing in the same way that sort of keeps them in check.
2: That's right. And Mary, I would just say one thing just to be really clear about this point is that when you are in a domain where the outcomes are probabilistic, so there's noise and there's luck and skill, let's say it that way. Process becomes really important. So, if you learn, for example, standard blackjack, so there are rules. So, when you're dealt certain cards, here's how you play them, here's how you bet, and so forth. Leaving aside even card counting, that optimal system, you'll lose a little bit of money, but you won't lose that much money. So, that process is the key. And there's going to be individual variants. Some days you'll win, some days you'll lose. But if you do that over time, you know that you're going to grind toward that probabilistic outcome. So, that's the first thing to say. Process is really important. If the outcomes are fully skilled dictated, if I play chess against Magnus Carlson, we know the winner before we start, and it's always going to be the case that he will win. So there's no variance whatsoever. But if it's a domain where there's a lot of variance, process becomes really important. And then the second thing, very much to your point, if you think about your own investment process, even as an institution, there are components of it that are immutable. So in other words, hope we agree the present value of cash flows and risk and reward and all those kinds of ideas that I think will stand the test of time there are a lot of components that are mutable and that is you need to learn. And so this is where the component of learning becomes so important in organizations. You have to learn about new businesses. You have to learn about intangibles. You have to learn about how options might affect things. You have to learn about all these different feedbacks. So the task of learning about, and you have to learn about new industries, who's going to win, who's going to lose. So that component never stops, but there are some underlying principles that probably do carry through different time periods. But again, this The mutable piece, the learning piece is really important too. And that was going back to even to Dan's comment before. If you start to get into this thing thinking that everything's immutable, here's how we do it. We never buy companies that lose money. That's where it becomes a problem because now all of a sudden you've lost the direction. You've now violated essentially the concept of what is immutable and what's immutable. So anyway, that's a bit of a rant on that. But I think that that's why process is so important is because in domains where luck plays a role, process becomes the key thing to focus on in order to generate satisfactory long-term returns. That's the key. You're not doing it for the sake of process. You're doing it specifically because that is the best path to long-term returns.
0: That point about immutable or not is really important. I guess my beef is often with managers, whereas page one of the presentation is something says something along the lines of, we all know that value stocks outperform over time. Therefore, we look for stocks that have a price earnings ratio of X. And I kind of just think, that feels like a little bit lazy to me, and it maybe needs a little bit more than that, but what do I know about that? The question, actually, I wanted to pick up on, it, maybe it's quite a long question to ask at this stage, but you just triggered a thought. I'm just going to put it on the table. Valuing something like Bitcoin with some of the principles you've talked about, I know you must have been asked this before, you must hate it, the question, but I'm just picking up a couple of things, intangibles, things like lines of code, you've got some intangibles there, real options, presumably there's a real options argument to how you could value it. Is there some sort of framework you can start putting around it with these tools?
2: I know a number of people have thought about this and there are some things out there. It's not an area where I would feel comfortable at all weighing in. And I wrote an article, a piece about this, I don't think it was last year or within the last two years, called Everything's a DCF Model. (laughs) That's, again, one of my typical rants about things. And, I was actually inspired. Some guy wrote me about some venture capital investment. He's like, yeah, venture capitalists don't use DCF. They use all this. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're using proxies. Let's get back to the core principles. So why DCF? And the answer is that's the present value of future cashflow. So what I would say that when I think about areas where I would feel comfortable, I may be wrong a lot, but where I would feel comfortable is where there is a present value of cash flows. And so things like wine or art or cryptocurrencies. There are ways to monetize cryptocurrencies. For example, you might have Bitcoin and lend it and get some rate of return or so forth. So you might be able to contrive a stream of cash flows. But the actual thing itself, I don't know, even gold, I don't know. There might be some basic supply-demand dynamics, but I just don't know how to do that with the frameworks that we're talking about here. So it's not to say that there isn't value. It's not to say that people won't perceive that there's value. But in other words, creating a model to say this is worth X would be something. And others may have better ideas than me. I'm sure that they do. It's just not an area where I would feel comfortable. It's out of my circle of competence for sure.
1: Just before we wrap up, should we just look forward for a moment? Michael, really keen to know what's on your agenda for the next sort of 12 months? What areas of research are you particularly focusing on?
2: We're going to continue with this intangible theme for sure. We are also doing a lot of work we have in the past, and we're going to refresh it on capital allocation. So this is a really important concept. So we want to examine how companies spend money. By the way, capital allocations really should be resource allocation, and it's broader than just spending money. So it's how you allocate people and so forth. But we're just going to be down to things we can measure. So this is like studying mergers and acquisitions, capital expenditures, dividends, buybacks, and so forth research and development. And I think, Mary, the thing that we're going to add to that mix, which we had not had before, is precisely the intangibles. And so that's a really interesting new flavor. So are there any interesting trends with capital allocation? We're working on some stuff now about thinking about the role of market share. So typically you'd think when we're thinking about competitive advantage of a business, we tend to say, okay, what kind of resources do they have? What kind of market positioning they have? And what does that mean for, are they low cost producers or differentiated or what have you? And then the outcomes of that typically are things like market share and customer loyalty and satisfaction and profitability and so forth. So one of the things we're playing around with is a simple idea that what we know is, especially since we've had digitization and this increase in intangibles, we have some examples of winner take most or winner take all markets. Traditional market share distributions. You think about soft drinks or tennis shoes or what have you. The leading players around forty percent. Next one's around thirty percent. You go from there. But we have markets. If you did a search this morning on Google, Google's got something like ninety percent share of the search market, which is extraordinary. And by the way it appears now to be a foregone conclusion but if you go back and look at search market shares through the 1990s you may live through that they were all over the place there are many competitors there the market shares they were jockeying for position from month to month certainly year to year so the question is can we look at market shares and go back and say does that tell us anything about the nature and structure of the competitive of the market so that's another area that we're interested in another topic i have this on my list for a long time i'm not sure i've really approached it thoughtfully I think some people don't work on this, which is if you're an organization, this is interesting. So the supply chain problems we've witnessed over the last 24 months are really an indication of fragility. Here's sort of the setup for this. If you are in an environment that does not change, what you want to do is optimize. And that optimization will allow you to be the most efficient as possible. However, if you're in an environment that changes, optimization is horrible because you're fragile and that optimization will crumble. So I think what we've learned in the last 24 months is that optimization, which many companies have sought, and that leaves aside some ideas like redundancy, has created a fragility that we're now paying the price for. So this sets up this sort of idea, if you're a company, you want to think about the trade-off between exploitation, which is doing more of what we're doing and doing it more efficiently, and exploration, which is trying out new things. And by the way, there's a huge literature, obviously this is a huge issue in nature, for instance. So foraging strategy and so forth of animals. So nature has been working on this problem for literally hundreds of millions of years. So the question is, can we come up with a general framework for thinking about how companies should trade off that exploitation versus exploration? And by the way, it's an interesting question, which is maybe companies should just exploit their source of excess returns and then just be willing to die. We're done. We're not going to explore. We'll let somebody else do that. Or the next question would be, should you try to balance both of those things? Oh, we've exploited this opportunity. Now we're going to move to some other adjacent product and try to do that. So this cantonating S curve. So these are interesting. And so by the way, if you're on a local level, dying is bad, but it may be fine on a global level. So as we think about this as investors, or we think about this as even people thinking about policy or economics, broadly speaking, yet what level do we want to understand the system? So Those are a couple, just a few things. We'll probably write more about valuation stuff. We are clearly continuing on the intangibles theme. So we'll have a couple things on that as well. So always a fun list of things, Mary, to work on. Brilliant.
0: It's an incredible list. Where should people find you to follow that stuff? You're on Twitter. Do you share on LinkedIn? Do you have a newsletter, that sort of stuff? I
2: usually link to them when I tweet about a report we publish. But if you literally type in the Consilient Observer, which is the name of our product... And Mobison, M-A-U-B-O-U-S-S-I-N, you can find it. I'll also mention that we're about to relaunch in the next few days. So By the time this comes out, it'll probably be relaunched. I have a website called michaelmobison.com, and that will include a reading section. And by the way, somebody, very industrious, went out and collected the vast majority of the things I've written since the mid-1990s and put them into these gargantuan PDF documents. So if you really, really wanna waste your time, you can go back and look at all this stuff from the last 25 years or so, more than that. That'll have a link for our current reports. It'll have a live Twitter feed there as well. So that would be a one-stop shop for present and past
0: stuff. Cool. Excellent.
1: As we wrap up today's episode, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away?
2: I think the biggest lesson in investing is really the idea of continual learning. One of the reasons I think many of us are drawn to this especially people who are curious about how the world works, is that you never have the game won. You never have the game beat. There's always something to learn. There's always new information to draw in. So I think the number one thing is to keep learning, have your mind be open. The one quality I really admire in people who make good decisions is this idea of being actively open-minded. I think that would be the one thing I'd want people to take away is to try to be as actively open-minded as possible.
1: What a good reminder for all of us.
2: Yeah,
0: it's a lovely takeaway. Michael, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: If I had to say, it would probably be that temperament is more important than smarts. We tend to think that smart people can do better than others, especially in an industry where there are a lot of numbers typically and some things to figure out. But I think if you examine what leads for great investment results over a long period of time, not just a short period of time, but a long period of time, it tends to be temperament. These are people who are able to fill in peaks and valleys. So when people are extremely bullish, you are much more reserved. When people are extremely bearish, you're much more positive. And there are interesting questions about how much of that is sort of in the nature of people and how much of that is something we can build into our organizations. I think it's a clearly a combination of those things. But I think the big one is temperament
1: is more important than smarts. Fantastic. And Michael, you've given us so many recommendations through today's episode. I think I've written down about six or seven. Do you have any final recommendations that you'd like to add to that list? We'll link all of them in the show notes.
2: There's a podcast I listened to, and I'll just mention three books that I found to be fun. And I don't even know if I've talked about these, but the first is there's a recent podcast from the Soane Conference this year between John Collison from Stripe and Stan Druckenmiller from Duquesne Capital And I tweeted about this. I mean, you don't have to agree with what Stan Druckenmiller says about the world to appreciate how extraordinarily thoughtful he is, how wise he is, and that he lays out many lessons that all investors can employ. I thought Collison's questions were quite thoughtful. And Druckenmiller, who's obviously been extraordinary for decades, I thought that was a really fun one. I'll mention three books that I've read this year that I've liked. The first is a book called Seven Games. Do you guys know this book by Oliver Roder? So really. Seven Games is exactly what it sounds like. He examines seven games. So it's poker and chess and backgammon and so forth. And he talks about the history of the game. And in each chapter, by the way, he talks about how those games, computers, how they became superhuman. So how computers essentially beat those games. And it's quite different for each of them. So it's quite interesting. If you like games, if you like to understand strategy, if you like to understand how computer scientists try to tackle becoming superhuman. That's a fun one. I thought as a fabulous read was Bill Browder's new book called Freezing Order. Many of you know the story about Bill Browder. He wrote a book called Red Notice, but he was a hedge fund manager in Russia. He crossed purposes with Vladimir Putin and the whole administration. So he had to pull out of Russia, but he unfortunately had a lawyer that stayed there to try to defend what they were doing, who was essentially died in jail. And so he's been on a mission to try to obviously sort of straighten things out in the name of this lawyer, but Freezing Order is sort of the next chapter of this. It's like a spy novel. It's unbelievable. Browder's a compelling compelling writer. And so that's a fun one. And it, obviously sort of geopolitically relevant. And then the last one I'll just say is the book that I can't get out of my head. Sometimes you read a book and you're, ah, whatever. And then you just can't get the idea that you had. Is a new book by Keith Stanovich. And that book is called The Bias That Divides Us. And it's about the concept of confirmation bias, and by the way, of course, having studied this stuff, I went into this book, thinking I'm above all this stuff, and he you cannot walk away from this book unscathed, recognizing that you are falling for the same <laughs> thing so he says confirmation bias is present when we process information to favor opinions that we hold in high esteem and with great conviction and is interesting thing is that he says most behavioral biases, almost all of them are mitigated by some sort of intelligence. If you're a brighter person, you know how to deal with these things and you're better at them with the exception of confirmation bias, which is really interesting. So you all talk to managers all the time. It's important to recognize that those who are most eloquent are often in a sense are the ones that are not mutable, that they're going to stick to these certain points of view. And by the way, he gets into politics at the end, so it may or may not be your case. But the basic concept of confirmation bias, I think is a really important read for people, again, to be aware of it. And then what can we do
0: to manage or mitigate it? Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, you've given us a whole host of reading material there. Maybe given what time of year we're at, maybe a whole lot of stuff for over the summer, something to keep us all busy on uh, sun lounges or wherever we're going to spend our summer. So thank you so much. Michael, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for your time today.
2: Dan, Mary, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Thanks again, Michael. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We really enjoyed recording it. Join us again next week for another episode. Take care.